As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. And welcome to another unbelievable classic replay. I'm Ruth Jackson, and this week we're delving back into the archives to bring you a discussion on the question. This show was uh, first broadcast in April 2011, and it is kind of a snapshot of where the debate on the emerging church was about 10 years ago. And it took place in the wake of Rob Bell's at that time recently published book, Love Wins. Let's jump in on today's discussion. Thank you to both my guests for joining me at relatively early times in the morning, somewhat earlier for James White than it is for Brian McLaren, but still both getting out of bed at um, good early times of the morning to join me today. Um, Thank you both, gentlemen. Let's turn to you first, Brian. Um, You'll be familiar um, to many people listening uh, who perhaps have read your books, uh, including A New Kind of Christian, A New Kind of Christianity, uh, Generous Orthodoxy. Most recently, you, you published Naked Spirituality. Um, tell us firstly a little bit about yourself for those who aren't familiar though, Brian, um, what's your background and, um, what, how did you come to be associated so strongly with this movement known as the emerging church? Sure, Justin. Well, uh, I grew up in, uh, the East coast of, uh, the U S and I was a, uh, a college English teacher. And while I was teaching, I, I'd become a committed Christian in my teenage years. And while I was teaching a little group of People started coming over to our home, and uh, we had a little fellowship Bible study. Most of them, uh, a lot of them were non-Christians, and gradually a number of them came to faith, and that ended up becoming a little church. So I was a a church planter and a pastor for 24 years. And um, during especially the maybe the last half of that 24 years, uh, we started noticing that that folks were asking different kinds of questions, that a, a kind of shift was going on. Uh, and we didn't really have good language to to understand that shift. Uh, it was shifting not just what people thought, but the way people thought. And um, as I tried to be a, a faithful pastor, and one of my primary gifts, I think, is evangelism, so trying to communicate the gospel and, and respond to questions uh, raised by these folks who were uh, beginning to explore faith at, at our church, uh, that that forced me to do a lot of rethinking. And uh, I discovered that there were other people grappling with similar questions, not just in the U.S. or in the U.K., but really around the world. And uh, a number of us started comparing notes and 
saying, what do you think about this? How are you responding to this question? And that's turned into a kind of a, a global conversation. And that's why, for me, when we talk about the emerging church, what it really is isn't a particular form of church with a unified theology, but it really is a conversation among people who are grappling with deep changes going on in our world that, uh, that, the, world has, that, that the church has to uh, engage You've become almost synonymous with the movement in some ways, Brian. Um, but for those who haven't come across it before, could, could you define the emerging church? I mean, have you just done that? I mean, is it impossible to sure. define such a, a wide-ranging sort of movement? Well, I, I think it's it's possible to describe, um, and, and maybe uh, I could I could say it in two or three different ways briefly. First, um, a, a lot of us believe that our that our world, especially Western culture, is going through a shift, and, and we often describe this with the prefix post. So we talk about it as a postmodern shift, a post-enlightenment shift. To me, one of the most important is post-Holocaust and uh, post-colonial. And these profound shifts are exposing the degree to which Christian faith in its many Western forms uh, was deeply embedded with colonialism, the Enlightenment, modernity, uh, and so on. And as we try to distinguish what is essential uh, gospel from what is a colonial expression of the gospel or a Western or modernist expression of the gospel, it, it requires us to do some deep theological rethinking. So the, the emerging church is taking place in the midst of that uh, of that rethinking, and uh, and it, it especially tends to spring up where people are dealing with younger generations, uh, who who would be more for them this postmodern context would be more their 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 native air they breathe, and it tends to happen more among educated people because I think as people are thrust into higher education they are forced to grapple with a number of these issues. Uh, it would uh, it would be more common where there is a lot of mixing of cultures because I think when people live in more isolated cultures, uh, they they don't have to grapple with uh, with new and fresh ideas as much, and um, and I think it tends to happen uh, where evangelism is occurring, uh, where and and maybe we could say also where reverse evangelism is occurring. Uh, what I mean by that is in places where uh, people outside the Christian faith are coming into faith and in places where people who were raised in the Christian faith are now strongly considering leaving. And in those cross-currents, as people try to do ministry, uh, new, new approaches to faith and church emerge, hence the name Emerging Church. Well, it's fascinating to, to have you on the program, and uh, I look forward to the interaction today. On the other side of this debate today is James White, who is uh, uh, heading up Alpha and Omega Ministries in Phoenix in Arizona, as I said, and uh, is coming from a Reformed Baptist church background. He's an elder there of his church. James, you have obviously um, kind of got a lot of interest in theological movements, trends, etc., Tell us a little bit about kind of what your theological bedrock is, as it were, in, in a similar way to, to what Brian's just described as his background, and, and what you make from, from that position of the emerging church movement. Well, it's interesting, in uh, reading uh, some of Brian's books just over the past few days specifically, I, I had to chuckle at one point because uh, 
he described going to church uh, wearing slippery socks, uh, slippery shiny shoes, and a clip-on bow tie. At least I think it was a clip. It may not have been bow tie. It may have just been a clip-on tie. And I, I thought how many times uh, my parents uh, did that to me, and uh, I, I think it was sort of emblematic of how we have diverged in that I still wear those ties, except now I tie them <laughs> rather than clip them on. So, and I still have the slippery socks. So, um, and he also mentioned... Uh, uh, the flannel boards and the chalk drawings, and my mom did flannel board. And, and so, in other words, we have a, a very similar background at that point. Uh, but in God's providence, uh, I ended up working in the field of apologetics, going to Fuller Theological Seminary. So I have been exposed uh, to many of the sources that Brian refers to in a very positive way, uh, such as uh, Brueggemann and Crossan and Borg and so on and so forth. In fact, I have had the opportunity now of debating John Dominic Cross and Marcus Borg, John Shelby Spong, Bart Ehrman, et cetera, et cetera. And yet we've, we've come to extremely different conclusions as to what it means to mature uh, from that same foundation. We had, we had the, the same, very similar upbringing, but the conclusions we've come to, uh, and it all comes back to this, this issue of postmodernity, modernity, uh, what uh, Mr. McLaren describes as the Greco-Roman uh, paradigm and, and way of thought. Um, and it really does end up uh, impacting, and hopefully in the brief time we have together, this is what would be made clear, why is it that we answer the big questions uh, so very differently? Why, why is uh, the answer to, uh, for example, the, the wrath of God and the holiness of God, the issue of sin, punishment, uh, whether God has any concern whatsoever about holiness of living in regards to sexual behavior and things like that. Why do we come to, why do we answer those questions differently, given that we started the same place? And I think it all comes back to uh, this issue of post-modernity. Uh, is the Christian faith a revelation from God that has transcendent value, that, that crosses all cultural uh, uh, barriers and boundaries, languages, and time, and stays the same whether you're in a medieval, modernistic, postmodernistic, or, or whatever else, uh, or is it something that essentially is a, a constant evolution and, and reformulation in light of the current paradigm of the culture in which it finds itself? Those are some of the issues I think um, yeah. really are brought to the fore by this particular discussion. Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. Okay, Brian, um, coming back to you, uh, when it comes to the postmodernism of the emerging church, uh, I mean, I think the criticism that often seems to get leveled is that, well, you're essentially, you know, changing the gospel to, to fit in with modern culture. You know, there is no ultimate absolute truth. That is, in, in a sense, the, the paradigm of po the postmodern kind of, um, you know, realm. So w what, what do you say in response to that? Uh, well, I strongly believe in absolute truth, but I'm, I'm also, because of, uh, I've studied history, as I'm sure uh, James has as well, uh, be because of my study of history, I'm also suspicious about uh, any individual group of people, and if I can be very frank, especially white male uh, European-based people, uh, claiming that they have uh, the absolute objective uh, universal truth completely figured out. And one of the reasons I would, I would raise that question is because the Christian faith uh, in, in the West 
uh, became in many ways the religious chaplaincy for some pretty horrible things uh, here in my country, uh, for the uh, stealing of the lands of the native peoples, for the enslavement of Africans uh, during the period of slavery, um, for your country, uh, Justin, in the whole uh, project of the British Empire uh, and, and so much that went on there in places like India, Nigeria, and so on. And um, uh, and I think about the impact of Christian faith in South Africa in the years of apartheid, where apartheid was a theologically justified uh, uh, project. And these were people who were absolutely sure all they were doing was living out and applying uh, the universal principles of, of Scripture. So uh, I suppose the correction I'd like to make is that it's not that I think postmodernism is the absolute truth and we need to uh, cut and trim uh, the, the Christian faith to fit in some kind of postmodernist framework. Uh, that's absurd. I don't believe that, uh, even though it's often asserted. Um, but, but I do believe that we should be suspicious about the degree to which the Christian faith always in the translation process uh, is subject to uh, distortion. And so in many ways, what the postmodern critique is about, uh, from a Christian perspective, is uh, looking at ways in which the gospel has already been distorted so that it would fit in a modern Western colonial uh, uh, framework. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not just simply, uh, are, oh, are you against absolute truth? It's, it's far more interesting and complex than that. What's wrong with that then, James? Well, I, I would point out that uh, when you think of the emergent church leaders, uh, Brian McLaren, Doug Padgett, Rob Bell, they all seem to be white male Europeans, so I'm not sure if that cuts both directions. And when we talk about horrible things done by nasty white Europeans, um, any element of God's truth can be abused and misused, and has been. Uh, I, I don't think that that is, is something that we need to be factoring in the sense of, well, if it's been abused, that, that must mean it needs to be rethought. Um, when, when Brian says uh, no one has the objective truth completely figured out, there's a difference between claiming to have perfect, absolute knowledge of everything and saying that there are certain elements of objective truth that are not negotiable and are absolutely fundamental. I, I think an illustration would, would help us to get, get rolling on this, and, and that is um, in A New Kind of Christianity, uh, Mr. McLaren talks about a fundamentalist having an ugly view of God. And then he, he makes this statement. He says, I'm not saying the Bible is free of passages that depict God as competitive, superficially exacting, exclusive, deterministic, and violent. But neither am I saying those passages are the last word in the character of God. I am not saying the Bible reveals a process of evolution within God's actual characters, if God used to be rather adolescent but has taken a turn for the better and is growing up nicely over the last few centuries. I am saying, and this is the important part, that human beings can't do better than their very best at any given moment to communicate about God as they understand God, and that Scripture faithfully reveals the evolution of our ancestors' best attempts to communicate their successive best understandings of God. And so there is this, there is an embarrassment concerning certain aspects of the revelation of God's character in Scripture. And once you take that view... Now the, the culture in which you live becomes the lens through which you determine what is and what is not mature or proper 
or uh, uh, perfect views of God in Scripture, and instead of the Scripture being what informs your culture, your culture becomes that which informs the Scripture. That, I think, is one of the key issues. Uh, I mean, this, this t- ties in, and I'll let you respond in just a moment, Brian, to this, um, but it obviously ties in somewhat to last week's show when Rob Bell joined me alongside Adrian Warnock, and we were talking about hell in his new book. And um, one of the criticisms leveled um, by Adrian and by others who, who, who emailed in is that um, to, to, to lay out different options for, for what um, salvation might look like, including a universalist option, is essentially to be bowing to a cultural mandate about what God should be like. Um, and many evangelicals, as I see it, Brian, are concerned that, that all that Rob Bell is doing and who, who many people see as, uh, you know, in the forefront of the emerging church movement is is doing what James has described there of chain, you know, essentially bowing to cultural demands of what this God should look like. And then, um, you know, reinterpreting scripture where whereas, you know, in another culture, another time, it's never been a problem, the idea of um, uh, an eternal hell and that sort of things. But you, you say that that's not a fair way of, of seeing what the emerging church is doing. Uh, well, I, I think it's, it appears fair to the people who are making the accusation. <laughs> but uh, to those of us who are on the other side of it, it's, uh, it, it seems to be missing the point, I'd say, yes. I mean, in a sense, then what is the point? Because um, do, do, well, uh, James makes the accusation that, that you say that people's view of God does evolve, and therefore there isn't, if you like, a, a revelation set down that we can we can trust. I mean, will will this change further, or have we had a final revelation sure. in the person of Jesus? Well, first of all, this is where it gets really tricky, uh, Justin, because. A whole lot of things get mixed together, and the conversation speeds through a number of things that to to really do to do the the, the issues justice we'd have to slow down um, for example, uh, I believe that that in Jesus Christ we have the fullest and the full revelation of god i I affirm what Colossians uh, says that in, in in Christ the invisible god is is um, is imaged. And uh, I agree with John chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. So I, I believe Jesus is the, is the full revelation of God. Um, but if we were to go back into, let's say, uh, let me pick three dates. Let's go back into Old Testament times in the era of the temple, uh, let's say the second temple. Um, uh, and if you ask the average uh, Torah uh, and prophet-loving Jew uh, in those days, uh, what is God like? They would say God only accepts people who have been circumcised. God only accepts uh, the worship of us uh, Jewish people. Uh, but actually, probably some Jews wouldn't have said that because there was a range of Jewish belief, uh, just as there's a range of belief in every group. But uh, uh, the idea that God would accept people who are Gentiles would have been absolutely abhorrent. So if we go back and put ourselves in the mind of the people in the Old Testament, and then we were to say, you know, a few centuries from now, someone named Jesus is going to come, and after Jesus, someone named Paul is going to come, and they're going to say that God accepts people who have not been circumcised, that people can come into worship who have black skin or who, uh, uh, you know, have dif- physical deformities. Uh, in fact, a temple won't be necessary, and sacrifices won't be necessary, and a priesthood won't be necessary. Those people would have said, 
you are violating the absolute revealed will of God in the Torah. And uh, so a change happened. And then we come to the New Testament times when, you know, Peter has that vision in visiting Cornelius. Uh, a radical change to say now that Peter says, I should not call anything uh, or anyone unclean. Uh, remarkable change, because people had been unclean uh, before. And and come fast forward a few more centuries to the period of slavery here in the United States. People quoted the, the Bible verses from Colossians and Ephesians about slavery, and they said, God never says slavery is wrong. God merely says it should be regulated. Uh, you know, we actually do change. And uh, all I'm, and people like me are trying to do is point out the fact that these changes do happen in history. Uh, and I just, I, I, that, that doesn't mean we're saying there's no such thing as truth. It doesn't mm. mean we're throwing Jesus off the bus. It just means we're trying to be honest about the fact that change has happened. Uh, but, but the God uh, that Christians worship, uh, the Jews worship before the Christians did, does not change during that process. And, and that's my concern, is that if we are saying, well, you know, uh, the, the God of the flood, you know, is, is an ugly God, and that, that represents an immature view of God, that's, in fact, if I recall correctly, and, and Brian is free to, to correct me here, I believe he said that's an unchristlike view of God. And I appreciate him saying, well, you know, Colossians has this high view of, of, of Christ. I agree, but that would require us to believe that the book of Colossians embodies for us a divine revelation that is normative. Um, and in, ironically, the very same sources that, uh, that, that Brian uh, refers to, people like Brueggemann and and others, um, Colossians is very frequently not viewed as being actually Pauline anyway. So uh, the, the, the question comes back to, how do you define what is Christ-like? It, you know, we, we quoted from yeah. John, and yet the vast majority of modern scholarship uh, doesn't view, view John as actually representing anything meaningful as to the historical Christ. So we still have to have a divine revelation of who Christ is to say something is Christ-like, to then use that as the standard by which we say the God of the Old Testament acted in unchristlike ways, and that's where we've gone, just that, that's the exact backwards direction. Uh, it, it's ironic, it, because, because Brian used a very uh, interesting um, analogy in, uh, in his book about uh, putting Adam and then Abraham and, and, and Noah and David and putting them all in a line and talking about uh, thinking this through in a biblical way instead of doing it backwards, doing it the right direction, the flow of the narrative. And I, I think that that that's exactly what he's not doing is is he is allowing the the modern or in the in this case postmodern uh perspective to determine uh what is embarrassing about god and what is not see from my perspective the holiness of god is not embarrassing it is glorifying it is it is the very reason he talks about evangelism it's the very reason i do evangelism is because I seek to glorify God through the proclamation of his truth. He uses that proclamation to bring his people unto himself, all of this glorifying the triune God. But all of it, for me, foundationally begins with the fact that God has been revealing himself, and that revelation is true from beginning to end. I have to take the holiness of God and the justice of God, and that then becomes the beautiful background of the cross of Christ, and the sacrifice of Christ, the atoning work of Christ, justification by faith, all these things, um, if I make the, the culture the lens through which I determine which of these things and how I'm going to read them, 
Uh, I no longer have a message that is the same for each culture. I, I, I suppose, each time. in a way, Brian, and we'll come back to you after a short break. That the point you you're making is that um, James is got a lot of cultural baggage when he kind of reads the theology the way he does. But we'll come back to that in a moment. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask NT Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. Is the emerging church a new kind of Christianity? Um, Should it be called Christianity at all is the question, I suppose, when it comes to some critics of the emerging church. One of them is with us today, James White, who heads up Alpha and Omega Ministries in Arizona. Um, But Brian McLaren is one of the uh, foremost sort of people involved in the emerging church movement, has written a number of books in regard to the theology that often shapes the movement. So we're asking today, uh, what about the theology of the emerging church? People like Rob Bell, like Doug Paget. Um, when it comes to, you know, truth, what do we mean by truth? And uh, how do we view, interpret the Bible when it comes to discovering what God is like and what God has laid down? Um, so, uh, Brian, just uh, towards the end of that last section, um, James was sort of explaining why he sees that there is this problem of, uh, you know, that, that, that essentially you, you don't have anything kind of, if you like, to, uh, to hold on to when it comes to, dealing with a sort of postmodernist view of faith of um, interacting with culture you have to have something which if, if you like stands the test of time which isn't going to bend and shape with culture otherwise in what sense can we even you know say that we have a, a view of god which is stands independent of that i suppose um i mean what give us an idea then of of, of why you see the, the way you do things as beneficial i mean many people are sort of disillusioned it would appear often with the evangelical church and with the way church is done I, I see that you obviously set up the church that you started a while ago uh kind of as a way of hopefully bringing in people who were disillusioned with christianity people who didn't think it was for them what what does the emerging church movement do for people who think that that uh, christianity is sort of as it were just um confined to a very narrow as it were a uh, view which which is out of step with modern society Sure. Well, uh, first, I, I should say I'm quite fortunate in this, Justin, because I, I've had the opportunity to see what's emerging around the world, and uh, I, I'm just amazed at the similarities and also the differences, but the similarities across cultures. For example, a year or so ago, I was in 
uh, the capital of Burundi, Bujumbura, and I gave a little talk to a group of people, and, and a, a, a young Burundian uh, seminary professor came up to me afterwards and asked if we could speak in private. And uh, he, he then, when, when we talked, he explained to me that across the city of Bujumbura, a city of somewhere between a half million and a million people, uh, there were uh, groups springing up of young adults who were part of traditional Pentecostal churches. Now, uh, I, I think most people will know what I mean if I say prosperity gospel. The, the prosperity gospel is kind of the dominant form of Christian faith in many parts of Africa. And um, uh, he, he explained to me that these young adults just couldn't stand showing up for another week of prosperity gospel church. Where they, you know, it's, it's claim your claim your miracle, claim your financial blessing, uh, you know, sow seeds into the the pastor's uh, ministry, and God will repay you a hundredfold. And they, they, you know, you grow up in that, and you hear it for fifteen, twenty, twenty-five, thirty years, and you just become disgusted because around you is injustice and poverty and uh, corruption, including corruption in, in the clergy making these claims. And so he explained to me that these little groups were springing up of people who couldn't stomach uh, that uh, kind of prosperity gospel, but who love Jesus and believe in Jesus. And so they were re-examining the scriptures. What do the scriptures have to say about poverty? What do the scriptures have to say about corruption and, and oppression? And so um, that's what I've observed. It's not a similarity uh, of, uh, you know, the same music is being sung or the same style of dress or whatever. No, the expressions are so varied. But what's similar is this desire to not throw out the Bible, not throw out Jesus, but to rediscover resources in the Bible that have been largely sidelined in traditional churches and uh, up and and see those resources helping us uh, uh, join God and God's work in the world that that's what I see in common whether it's Bujumbura Burundi or Phnom Penh Cambodia or uh, New York City or London or Buenos Aires or, or wherever I mean, James, I don't think you would either see the prosperity gospel as well. You would see it as a as a as a aberration and a, um, a twisting of right. scripture. Um, what what? So so. I mean, do, on that point, you could agree, I'm sure, with Brian. Oh but, yeah, sure. But, I mean, I mean, Justin, there were many many times that in, in in reading uh, Mr. McLaren's books that I, I'm going, you know, I've preached on this subject myself. I've preached about this aberration and that twisting and and the. The folding in of of uh, fundamentalism upon itself and its legalism and its uh, we are right and everybody else is wrongism and and all of those things are are completely true. It's what you do with that uh, it, that is then joined with a well we don't want to be out of step with our society. I want to be out of step with a society that denies life. I want to be out of step with a society that promotes a godless form of sexuality. I want to be out of step with a naturalistic society um, that, that doesn't even begin with the thought of God, or God is just simply an object of knowledge out there rather than the very foundation of our thinking. I want to be out of step with those things. And so, for me, what, what the difference really comes down to is, I think this might help because most of your listeners, uh, Brian, I'm, I'm sorry, Justin, have heard me uh, on your program dialoguing uh, with Muslims and uh, doing debates there in London on that particular subject. How does this look in reality? Let's ask uh, Mr. McLaren and I, myself to look at how we, for example, interact with Muslims. 
Uh, you've already seen how I do that. Um, those people in London there have seen that the, just recently I engaged in a debate there with Bassam Zawadi, uh, calling people uh, to who Jesus is, that Jesus is not merely a, a Razul, uh, that it is not enough to believe he's just a prophet or to even proclaim a love for someone who was just a prophet, but that Jesus Christ died upon Calvary's tree. He rose again the third day. He is the Lord of all, the King of kings. He's the creator of all things. And therefore, you cannot be neutral uh, about that Jesus, and you cannot reject that Jesus, according to the very same words of the Gospel of John cited earlier. To reject that he is the I am is to die in your sins. And so that becomes a, a, a bedrock, a, a truth that causes me to love my Muslim uh, friends and to seek to, to introduce them to the real Jesus Christ. And yet there are many in the world today, and I'm not sure what Mr. McLaren's view on this is. I have a feeling from his books, but I'm not certain, who would say, that element isn't necessary. Uh, I want them to be good uh, followers of Jesus who are Muslims, or followers of Jesus who are Buddhists, or followers of Jesus who are Hindus. Um, that's where I think the, this, this question ends up leading in a real uh, visible way that, uh, that might help to uh, mm. illustrate the issue. Yeah, well, well, that, that's a helpful illustration. So, Brian, I mean, would you like to respond to that? What, what would be your approach when it comes to, it, well, interacting with Muslims? Do you, do you have the direct sort of, this is the truth, we stand on this, and you have to accept this truth in order to be saved? Or, or, or do you see that um, it's not as simple as that in some way? Uh, yes, uh, I, uh, you know, as... as uh, James mentioned earlier, uh, because uh, I grew up in, in a similar background to his, uh, I, I understand where he's coming from, and uh, I, I have come to see the biblical narrative as, as telling a different story, I think, than James does. Um, and so for me, the primary story is not a story about who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. Uh, and, and this is where I, you know, I have a lot of sympathy with Rob Bell, uh, who you talked with last week. Um, uh, to me, the, the primary direction I see uh, in the Bible is not God abandoning creation and only caring about one elect group of people. Uh, my understanding is God cares about all of creation. God loves all people. And God's election of a group of people is not to the exclusion of everyone else, but for the benefit of everyone else. And so uh, in my interaction with Muslims, my first thought is not uh, these Muslims are all going to hell unless they convert and become Christians. My first thought is these Muslims are my fellow human beings made in the image of God. God loves them, and so I want to love them too. Um, I want to bring every treasure that I've discovered in Jesus Christ to the table, because anyone who I love, I want to offer them the good things that I've enjoyed. And I want to, so I want to share with them all of the good that I have received and experienced uh, through Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, and I want to offer that to them, and I hope that they'll accept it, and what happens with it will, can, can, uh, you know, unfold in many, many different and, ways. And but, uh, li like Rob Bell and Gandhi, you're not prepared to sort of label someone as hellbound because they profess a different faith. Um, I mean, in a sense, when we did speak with Rob Bell last week, 
his approach was about asking questions. He, he didn't really want to be pinned yeah. down to definitive statements of what's going on. This this is the way it is after you die. This is who's going there. This yeah. is who isn't. Uh, I mean, is that kind of something that is part of what the whole movement is about? The theology of the movement is, is about more about questioning than about uh, definitive statements of fact? Well, uh, again, I wish I could give you a simple answer on that. <laughs> but Justin, here's, here's the problem. When you're talking to people who see the world through a very clear, firm, unshakable lens, uh, they, it's very hard for them to even imagine seeing the world in any other context. And so when you're talking with people in that context, sometimes the best you can do is raise questions, uh, and uh, that, that's, that's all you can do. But if I could take what I think is one of Rob's ideas and maybe expand upon it in a way he hasn't been able to very much because, uh, because again, people are, are wanting to show how what he's saying is different from what they think. But I think Rob would agree with this, that a lot of the passages in the Gospels that talk about, that, that we interpret to be talking about an eternal hell, are actually talking about something that happened in history, and that was uh, the destruction of Jerusalem in, in A.D. 70. Um, and I think so many things that we think are about the end of the world were actually about the end of the world as Jesus' contemporaries knew it. The world centered in sacrifice, priesthood, temple, holy city, ethnically pure people, and so on. And that world came to an end. And the reason it came to an end, or one reason it came to an end, is because the people rejected Jesus and his message, and instead of choosing his way of reconciliation, they chose the way of violent revolution. Um, so, in a sense, I, I want to warn people about the terrible consequences of rejecting the way of Jesus. Um, but I think we see those terrible consequences in things like terrorism and counterterrorism, uh, in environmental destruction, in racism and, uh, and systemic injustice, uh, in the horrible plight of the poor, and the fact that eventually the rich discover that they're part of the same world as the poor, even if they try to shut them out. If we reject those things that I think are central to Jesus' teaching, uh, we are going to reap horrible, horrible consequences. So when Rob is raising questions about hell, he's not just trying to say, oh, everything's fine, don't worry about anything. He's trying to say, no, let's pay attention to what Jesus said, and let's see that there are actual historic consequences uh, that we're going to face if we reject Jesus in his way. James, uh, yes, I'm sure you want to respond to what Brian had to say in that last section. What, what, what were you trying to say? Yeah, the important thing, I, I want to make sure this, this got out. Uh, I have not been overly impressed with a lot of the responses that I have seen to Brian McLaren's books. I, I tried to look some things up and listen to th some things. I wasn't all that uh, impressed, to be perfectly honest with you. There was a lot of knee-jerk reactions out there, and uh, these are serious questions that need serious answers. At the same time, I think Mr. McLaren needs to understand that... Um, Coming from my perspective, and given that we have a very similar background, I see a lot of caricaturing of, of my position. For example, it, it was just said that, uh, well, you know, James has a biblical narrative about who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. No, I don't. Uh, my biblical narrative is about the triune God's self-glorification. The central way of doing that is the salvation of a particular people through the incarnate one, Jesus Christ, and that's what motivates my interactions with the Muslim people, because Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. He said that to people standing right in front of him. 
And those words had meaning when they were, when they were spoken. Those words continue to have meaning today. We need to make application. I don't know that a postmodernist worldview can actually do that. But see, this is where, you know, there was a major difference there. I hope people saw there was a major difference between how Mr. McLaren and I uh, approach Islam. And I think it goes back to some major differences that have developed uh, in how we view God. In, in a new kind of Christianity, he talks about the God who brought judgment in Noah's flood. And he said, in this light, a God who mandates an intentional supernatural disaster leading to unparalleled genocide is hardly worthy of belief, much less worship. Well, I would argue very clearly that Jesus of the New Testament believed in that God. He never showed any embarrassment of that God. And in fact, it is that just judgment upon man's sin that is revealed so clearly in the flood that is the necessary background to understand the cross and to understand the depth of the love and mercy of God that is demonstrated there. And so it all comes back to, once again, this, this reimagining of the faith. What, why do we need to do that? What is the purpose of it? And what does it lead to? I think it leads to very, very different applications in evangelism, missions work, and how the church itself looks. I have a feeling, though, Brian, that that your view of the cross will be different again to James's, um, uh, because James obviously sees this very much in the context of um, a God who, as it were, uh, deals with the wrath justly again, that, that is, if it were, justly um, put upon people for the sins they have done. In the past, that was with a flood. Now it's through Jesus. You, I'm guessing, don't have that view of the cross. You don't see that that's necessarily the paradigm by which you view what happens on the cross. And and how are we to dis, dis, decide between you, as it were? Um, and it, it, is this claim that you are simply um, embarrassed at some of the, you know, what what people see as, you know, old-fashioned views, um, uh, bloodthirsty views of God or whatever it might be? Is is that fair that that you're you're kind of changing because of uh, embarrassment? Well. The, the, First of all, uh, I, I'm, I'm very glad James uh, brought up the problem of caricature. And I, James, just be assured, I, I appreciate your desire to avoid caricature. I didn't mean I wasn't trying to uh, say that I had defined your view. I, I, I'm uh, I, and and I think your comment brings up something that's very important. Um, it, there aren't just two views on things. There are many views, and there are many shades of views. And and so if we're communicating with one another, uh, we if, we have to try to, to actually hear each other as human beings. And, and James, I really appreciate your desire uh, to do that. And I, I think we take a huge step forward when, when we stop throwing people into, you know, big bins of, uh, oh, he's liberal, oh, he's fundamentalist, and, and so on. Because we, we all are grappling with these problems in different ways. Uh, and um, uh, But w- when it comes to the cross, you're, you're right. Um, uh, maybe a, a way I could uh, offer a, the, a, a difference, and I'd be interested in how James would respond to this. Um, uh, you know, we just had Good Friday a, a few days ago, and, and on Good Friday, to me, one of the questions is, where do we see God primarily imaged in, in Good Friday? Do we, do we locate God uh, as as adding to the torture and pain and suffering of Jesus. In other words, is God in some way working through the Roman soldiers uh, to, to bring pain on Jesus? Or do we see God more primarily imaged in the suffering crucified man? 
And this, to me, brings to a head uh, two very, very different understandings of the cross. If, if we see God primarily inflicting pain on Jesus, uh, and again, I understand the, the, the theory behind that is that God is doing that because God loves us and, and wants to forgive us of our sins, but it's very different if we say, no, we actually see God imaged in Jesus as the one who human beings are torturing and hating. And from that point of being hated and rejected, God does not uh, promise revenge, but rather God, through Christ, says that we should be forgiven. Uh, so to pronounce forgiveness at the moment of horrible, unspeakable violence and hatred, uh, to me, reveals the heart of God. Um, so that that's one way to describe uh, two different angles on this. I'd love to hear James's response to that. Go ahead, James. I think the greatest response I can offer to that is the prophetic word that gives us the background and definition upon which the New Testament authors even understood the cross. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. And notice the assertion, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, etc., etc. The... the my concern in, so much, in, in reading so much of, of, of Brian's book was, a, and, and he's going he's gonna to bristle at this, but a modernistic um, uh, insistence upon taking one view and saying that view is uglier or that view is uh, you know, out, of, out of bounds, when, when the beauty of the cross is seen only when you see all its multifaceted fullness, including the reality of the wrath of God against sin and the necessity, absolute necessity. Jesus said, it is necessary that I go to Jerusalem. I must do this. This is why I came. This is the whole purpose, is to provide that just means of peace with him that does not leave his law just simply by the side of the road as a, as a cast-off of an earlier view of God but as something that is good and right and justice, and it has now been fulfilled, but it's been fulfilled by who? By God himself and the person of his Son. And so how is God, quote-unquote, imaged? He's imaged in all of it. Yes, it was, what did the early church say in Acts chapter 4? It said, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Romans, the Jews, did what your hand predestined to occur. That was the faith of the early church. And so they saw God's hand in all of that, and we need to take in the fullness of that rather than choosing through a lens of our culture which aspects we will uh, uh, focus upon, which ones we won't. Well, first of all, uh, going back to the scripture when, in John, when uh, Jesus said, you will die in your sins, I, I, I agree with what Jesus said there. The issue is, if... Does Jesus mean when he says you will die in your sins exactly what Christians today mean when they say you're suffering for, from uh, original sin? Um, I, I, maybe he meant exactly that. Uh, I, I find that implausible. Um, and, and the same uh, in, um, uh, you know, th throughout that conversation. I, I, I think in each of those scriptures we could look at them in some depth and see, you know, that what, what uh, James is offering is an interpretation, and it's an interpretation with a lot of history. Um, I would say that interpretation arises out of a cultural context as well. Uh, so, for example, the, the context of what's often called penal substitutionary atonement theory, which I think has some value and some validity, 
Um, but I think we have to acknowledge that arises out of a context of an understanding of law from St. Anselm and, and others. Uh, and, and I'm not saying it's worthless, but I, I'm saying that actually is a culturally conditioned uh, interpretation. Well, it it well. sounds like you're both claiming of each other that there, there are culturally conditioned sort of ways in which you're treating the Bible. And so you say James James has a particular conservative evangelical view which is conditioned out of a certain theolo- theological sort of trajectory and and James says you you are as it were culturally conditioned by the western culture you live in Brian to, to kind of accommodate the view of God to certain western sensibilities uh, I mean how how do you escape the trap of postmodernism yourself Brian if 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 you know in a, in a sense how how do you say no treating the Bible in this way is the right way the Bible should be treated. In a sense, that in itself is a fundamental statement of, of how you believe theology should be done, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, I suppose I'm in a more vulnerable situation here in that I have to acknowledge what I'm saying is an interpretation, and uh, others may disagree with the interpretation, uh, and I'll listen to what they say, and uh, I, I, I want to be instructed, I want to learn, uh, but what I, I, I'm unable to do is to say uh, my interpretation is ironclad and uh, invulnerable and, uh, you know, d- doesn't ever need to be questioned. And this is where, for me as a Christian, uh, I, I, I'm, I keep going back to the Scriptures, and I just keep saying these, I have to engage with the Scriptures. And and uh, I think probably a difference, and this might be a difference, uh, what we might call a pre-critical difference, meaning we, we come to the text with a different assumption here, but uh, I, I come to the text with, uh, with the awareness that uh, the text itself has some of these arguments going on within it. And I think James and many others would come to the text with the assumption, no, this text actually reveals a coherent systematic theology, and uh, we just have to sort of reorganize some of the ideas, but everything is there to create an ironclad uh, view that is, uh, you know, that there's no debate. Mm. A very quick response before we go to our our, our final break, James. There's a vast difference between an ironclad, exhaustive, final word, no debate uh, understanding and the recognition that the Word of God does present to us and is sufficient to provide to us everything we need to know for life and godliness and to understand what God would have us to know about the gospel, about the cross, about atonement. When Jesus said, uh, you will die in your sins, that is in a particular context that we can understand given the application of the rest of John chapter 8. The atonement very clearly laid out for us in Hebrews 9. Uh, He entered in our place, into the heavenly places. The the concept of substitution there is not something that just comes from Anselm. Anselm is the historical application of that, but the foundation is found in the Scriptures itself. Yes, that is one big difference, is I really do believe in the sufficiency of Scripture on that level. We're going to, again, take a quick break, and uh, we'll be concluding this discussion uh, with just some final thoughts in the next section of the program. Do hope you're enjoying it. Um, We're getting our theological brains in gear this afternoon on the show. As uh, we sort of do some of the back work, if you like, I think, that that kind of undergirds the discussion we heard last week between Rob Bell and Adrian Warnock. And when it comes to the theology of the 
emerging church where 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 is the ground if you like and what what, what are we talking about what are the different perspectives that are being outlined and, and uh, i think we've had a really interesting and helpful discussion today uh, kind of teasing out the differences uh, between james white and brian mclaren on the program today so we'll we'll hear their final thoughts in just a moment's time You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio. We've been asking today, is the emerging church a new kind of Christianity? Uh, That, of course, is the title of uh, one of Brian McLaren's best-selling books. Uh, Brian is an author, storyteller and theologian, very much at the forefront of the emerging church movement. Uh, Time magazine named him one of America's most influential evangelicals in 2005. But some Christians are concerned that maybe Brian is post-evangelical and that the emerging church has kind of brought into a post-modern paradigm of truth and that um, we're it's sort of reshaping the gospel uh, to kind of fit a more modern age in a way that isn't consistent with the gospel itself. Well, uh, putting some of the criticisms uh, to Brian today has been James White of Alpha and Amiga Ministries. By the way, uh, links to both gentlemen's websites and more resources at the Unbelievable podcast, uh, premier.org.uk slash unbelievable. Yeah, so Brian, um, you know, uh, you, you do see the emerging church, do you, as the way that Christianity will be renewed in the future? You you see this as it almost perhaps um, somewhat like the Reformation. It is kind of a, a new phase in Christianity, where which which where which is necessary in order for the church to continue to be a voice in the world today. No, I don't think I would say that. I, uh, first of all, I would acknowledge, begin by acknowledging the phenomenal diversity in the Christian Church. You have Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, Anglicanism, Pentecostalism, Indigenous Christianity, Reformed, Calvinism, so on. Many, many different forms of the Church. And um, I would say that whatever this emerging phenomenon is, it's just one small uh, uh, movement uh, in the church of people grappling with certain issues and trying to make contributions, and also receiving great contributions from all of these other uh, uh, sectors of the church. So I, I don't have any uh, any sense that uh, you know this is the future or whatever. I, I think the future will contain everything that we have uh, in the present, but I think that there will be. Uh, I think every different tradition continues in its own way and at its own pace to uh, to learn and grow and adapt. James, um, w- c- coming back to what Brian's been saying about uh, the the way that he sees this is developing, um, do you do you see going back to the question, the emerging church as a new kind of Christianity? Do, do you believe it is actually not Christianity in some sense, uh, or has diverged drastically from what you perceive to be Christianity? I think Brian needs to understand that when you say things like uh, the, the God of the Flood is hardly worthy of belief, much less worship, uh, that that does create a rather strong uh, rift uh, as far as uh, the position that you're presenting. By the way, uh, I hope, uh, though, that he would take it to be an encouragement that I knew how he was going to answer that last question. Uh, as you were asking it, uh, I said, you know, uh, if uh, a new kind of Christianity represents his current thinking, uh, he's going to say, no, uh, that this isn't just the future, because he views it as a, as a evolutionary continuum. He used different colors to talk about uh, the time of security and, and the time of prosperity and so on and so forth. So I understand where he's coming from. Uh, my, my message, I guess, to, uh, to Brian McLaren is 
we start the same place, but it's amazing how far apart we now are. And the reason I see that we've gone this far apart from one another is, I'll put it upon myself, my absolute commitment to the sufficiency of Scripture to speak across all of time. This isn't just a quote-unquote constitutional reading of Scripture, but it is a reading of Scripture that allows it to be consistent with itself and to allow it to have these beautiful lines of consistency from beginning to end, these themes that are woven throughout the text of Scripture. And I believe that the sources that he has turned to uh, cut those, those, those lines apart, and they, they don't allow for the beautiful tapestry of divine truth that can transcend the cultural fads such as postmodernism. Postmodernism will pass because we're created in the image of God. We can't think that way consistently. We can't live that way. No one lives a consistent postmodern life. They can't because we're made in the image of God. And so there is this divine truth that is there. That's the gospel that is going to continue on until the Lord Jesus returns someday for his people. A few final thoughts from you, Brian, as we close today's program. Um, well, I, I certainly share uh, James's confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I certainly share uh, his belief that there are beautiful themes that go from beginning to end in Scripture. Um, and uh, I, I would probably focus on some, some different themes than he does, uh, but uh, the thing that we both share is a deep sense of awe and worship and wonder when we look at those themes uh, and we uh, end up wanting to worship and honor and glorify God, even though our concepts of God are uh, have some significant differences, just as James said. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that discussion. Please let us know what you thought. Email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or leave a comment on our Twitter account at unbelievablefe or on the Premier Unbelievable Facebook page. And do check out our website, premierunbelievable.com. That's premierunbelievable.com. Thank you for listening and see you next week for another unbelievable classic replay. <laughs>